So we know that trauma does not change our DNA. You know, that takes generations for DNA to change. But what we are finding is that trauma changes the expression of certain genes. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and influential guests who are making their mark on the world and contributing to the common good. Making your mark, big or small, is creating a legacy, and it's one of the proven ways we can age with vibrance and deep contentment. Zestful Aging Podcast is my legacy. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, who is a previous guest on Zestful Aging. Find out more at judybanker.com. And to find out more about this podcast, my web courses and other offerings, hop on over to zestfulaging.com. Hi there. Spring has definitely sprung, and I'm seeing little purple crocuses popping up in my neighborhood. And to celebrate the season, I'm taking $20 off of my popular Zestful Aging web course. You will learn the tried and true ways to add zest and vitality to your life, and it comes with a booklet I made just for the course. It's all based on science and my 30 years as a psychotherapist. So hop on over to ZestfulAging.com for more information and use the code SPRING2021. You will get $20 off the course and it is going to be a great way to start the season. Now back to the show. Well, as usual, I've got my little loyal Jack Russell Sparky right by my side. So let's begin. We have a fascinating interview for you today. I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Carolyn Coker Ross, and she's a physician who specializes in treating eating disorders, addictions, and trauma. She became particularly interested in intergenerational trauma, where the effects of trauma are past from one generation to another, when she looked at her own family tree and and saw that it was riddled with generations of trauma, obesity, and mental illness, she speaks on the topic of international. Sorry, intergenerational trauma, both nationally and internationally. And I am really honored to have her on. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Nicole. I'm glad to be here. Um, I loved your TED Talk and was so, uh, it, it touched me so deeply and I thought people, I don't know that people who are not clinicians, correct me if I'm wrong, really are aware of this phenomenon whereby pro, uh, trauma gets passed down from one generation to another. Can you explain how that actually happens? Yeah, these studies actually started back in the 60s uh, on offspring of Holocaust survivors because many of them were reporting kind of similar to their parents that they had some symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and a lot of high anxiety uh, and just a whole host of other effects 
that would make you think that they or their children, in other words, the Holocaust survivors' grandchildren, had been exposed to some particular trauma, when in fact it was the parents and grandparents who had been exposed to the trauma. So at first there was a theory called the social learning theory, which means, you know, if you grow up in a home where someone has is an alcoholic or someone has experienced uh, severe trauma, then they parent differently than someone who hasn't. And that was the original theory. But now we have science, which actually supports a biochemical reason. And this science is the new science of epigenetics. So we know that trauma does not change our DNA. You know, that takes generations for DNA to change. But what we are finding is that trauma changes the expression of certain genes. So maybe the expression, for example, for addictions may be turned on or the expression of the gene for uh, mental illness may be turned on. So even in Holocaust survivor offspring, they're now finding biochemical changes on the cellular level in uh, genes that have, have to do with how we deal with stress, for example. And then on the kind of macroscopic level, we know that many children, offspring of Holocaust survivors, well, let's start with the survivors themselves. Uh, if they have had uh, been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, which obviously many of them have, then we know that they may experience something called psychic numbing, which is a way of dealing with their trauma, that they just have difficulty expressing emotions. However, their offspring experience this psychic numbing as emotional abuse or neglect. Mm -hmm. And so that then is their trauma is their, you know, it has been passed along. The effects of their parents' trauma is their experience of emotional abuse and neglect and then that gets passed on to future generations. So I that's see. epigenetics. It's, it's a, a change in expression. Mm -hmm. What does it look like? Do you have a sense? I mean, I'm thinking about brain scans and things lighting up or not lighting up. Uh, yeah, do you it's, that would be a macroscopic level. And this is really on a cellular level where we're seeing changes in uh, what's called methylation on genes. And for example... Uh, methylation in the brain is required to make neurotransmitters like serotonin, dopamine, and so on. And many people, many of your listeners have probably heard of the natural supplement SAM-E. Mm -hmm. And SAM-E actually fosters methylation in the brain, and that's how it helps with depression and anxiety. So in these in people who have been traumatized, there's a defect in methylation, which means that it could affect the production of, you know, the brain chemicals that help with depression, anxiety. It could also lead to attention deficit disorder. It might affect, you know, other genes in different ways. And so that's kind of where the science is now. I see. So are you are you able to see methylation or the lack of methylation on a blood draw or other clinical assessment tool? 
Uh, well, interestingly, there is a uh, test called the MTHFR test, which is a genetic test that shows if there is a methylation defect that affects production of neurotransmitters in the brain. And you can that test is really easy to get from uh, most, well, I, I, I say easy to get. I think it's easy to get if you see a naturopath or an integrative medicine doctor like myself. And you can definitely see that people have, you know, like mild, moderate, or no methylation defect, um, or they have a complete methylation defect. And so if that happens, for example, when in, in regard to depression or anxiety, then you can use a prescription medicine that particularly provides B vitamins that are in their methylated form. Mm. But we're not, we don't have an easy test except for the researchers on looking at system-wide methylation mm -hmm. defects. And that's what they're seeing in trauma patients, system-wide methylation issues. So I, I understand that now when uh, one of my clients goes to get a, um, a med evaluation, now, of course, they're doing saliva tests, right, to, to look at the genetics and to look at the system and see what medication might be more or less helpful. Is that? Are yeah, that's the test that usually shows that defect in methylation as relates to B12 and folic I acid. See. So many of the supplements for B vitamins now already come with methylated B12 and folate because we're finding so many people, you know, who have a partial or full defect. Mm -hmm. So I, I definitely want to talk to you about some of your discoveries and um and your observations about your own family, and you've talked about them uh, at, at your TED Talk. It was it's really, really interesting. But I'm also curious now, what are your thoughts about what's happening in our world now in terms of the high, high rates of anxiety and depression and higher suicide rate in this? Would you imagine then we're having kind of a, a whole population that might be uh, vulnerable to some of this, uh, this phenomenon you're talking about, the epigenetics? Yeah, I think that's a hard question to answer because when they looked at, for example, Holocaust survivor offspring, what they found is if you just look at them as a whole, there's no problem in the offspring. However, if you pick out Holocaust survivors who have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, it is their offspring who really have the, the problems show up. So the question is, I mean, obviously there's a lot going on right now. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, there's reactivation of trauma, particularly in black and brown people <clears throat> around the social unrest that we're seeing after the death of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. um, but when you think about, you know, uh, other Americans, obviously there's isolation, there's loneliness, there's increased depression and drug use uh, because of isolation and loneliness imposed by the pandemic. But whether that reaches the level of actually uh, changing the epigenome, I don't think 
that's clear. We don't know the answer to that. I see. And it's so complex. Yeah. Right. Hey, lovely listeners, I have something really special to share with you. I recently interviewed Dr. Elise Baylou, who is the founder of Mindfulness in May. Every May, thousands of people worldwide join the program featuring the world's best experts, and build mental resilience through committing to 10 minutes of meditation per day, while also raising funds to address the world's most urgent global issues. Over the last eight years, Mindful in May has taught over 40,000 people to meditate while raising $800,000 to bring clean, safe drinking water to the developing world. Well, I'm going to give out five free registrations for Mindful in May to the listeners of Zestful Aging who write the most descriptive and original five-star review of Zestful Aging on whatever platform you use to listen. And after you rate the show, please copy and paste your review and send it to me at ZestfulAging.com with instructions on how to contact you. The contest ends April 30th, and I'll be joining the program in May, and I can't wait. And please check out mindfulinmay.org. It's really special. Look for Elise Bailu's episode coming soon. Now, back to the show. Would you talk a little bit about intergenerational trauma as it relates to people who um, have been oppressed, brown and black people, and what that effect might look like? Yeah, I I think um, if you start with, and I think it's, you know, we've had, there have been a lot of articles on this now starting about a year ago with the 1619 I don't want to call it an expose, but series of articles in the New York Times, which actually went through the entire history of black and brown people, or particularly black people in the United States, starting with slavery and its impact on culture and uh, socialization, economics, dance, music, etc. And uh, we know, I mean, there have been plenty of movies uh, going way, way back that have shown how traumatic slavery was to black people. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, we can assume, therefore, and we know from studies, that epi- epidemiology studies that show that in areas of the country where there was a high preponderance of slavery, the black descendants of slaves there continue to have high levels of uh, medical and mental health issues like uh, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and so on. And that's now, you know, 200 years after slavery was supposedly ended. And we also know from studies that the ongoing racial oppression and, um, you know, the regular day-to-day systemic racism that both black and brown individuals experience Uh, has an impact on mental and physical health. So all of that has been studied pretty well. And you you combine that with, you know, the adverse childhood experiences study, and it's pretty clear 
that there have been essentially 400 years of um, you know systemic racism uh, that there have been 400 years of child uh, maltreatment both as a, the legacy of, of slavery and also as the legacy of intergenerational trauma uh, and so that that leaves us where we are today with situations such as we've been seeing over the past year of all of the deaths in young black men and women at the hands of police and also the conversations around you know how does systemic racism even exist in America today after mm. you know after so many decades and so many hundreds of years you know mhm mm mhm and so when you have a patient come in who has let's say they're a black or brown person and they come in and they say i'm feeling really depressed at what point do you talk about, if you do even talk about intergenerational trauma? Well, I think that's a great question, uh, Nicole, because unfortunately many black and brown people themselves are not educated about the link between, between trauma and mental health issues, trauma and obesity, trauma and addictions. And so, you know, where I have to start usually is in educating people about that link. And then we can talk about what has the trauma been. Um, and, and it's, you know, obviously there also is trauma and, and you know, systemic uh, poverty and, mm -hmm. and so on in uh, non-black and brown populations where intergenerational trauma such as the trauma of having uh, a parent with alcohol use disorder or the trauma of having a parent with a mental illness. And that's been demonstrated in the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> there was a, a recent uh, movie that came out, I don't know if you saw that, called Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, I did not. Yeah, it's on, um, it's on Netflix, but... Anyway, I found it very interesting, although the reviewers kind of panned it. But that's it. Glenn Close is one of the actresses in it, and it has a couple of other well-known people in it. And it's uh, based on a memoir by J.D. Vance. And I don't know who that is, but anyway, he talks about the poverty of growing up in Appalachia, mm -hmm. in Kentucky, and the addiction that you know, went through generations of his family and how that, you know, shaped the family dynamics and created trauma for the children and the grandchildren and so on. So the, if you just picture in your mind uh, this man and then go back two generations, his grandfather apparently was a raging alcoholic mm -hmm. who would come home, beat the, the grandmother. She would hide the children. They would cower in the closet in terror and then you know the next generation his mother became a drug addict you know she had a very high intelligence she you know was had many options to become to break this cycle of of addiction and, and violence but for one reason or another you know like many people coming from those backgrounds including black and brown people had uh, early promiscuity, got pregnant, uh, that then shaped her future. Of course. 
course. And so on and so forth. And then it comes to the, the protagonist of the story, J.D. Vance, and his generation and the decisions that he had to make in order to break the cycle. And I really identified with that because that's what I talked about in my TEDx Pleasant Grove talk, which was how I've basically spent my entire life trying to heal my family, um, you know, from a very young age, realizing, you know, that, you know, that there was, there were problems and not wanting to continue the issues that my mom experienced, that my grandparents experienced, et cetera, et cetera. So you had clarity at a young age that you wanted to do it differently and you were working. Your goal was to not end up like your mom or your grandmother. Absolutely. Well, my grandmother was a different story. My grandmother was a very evolved human being, and she was kind of like more of a mother to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother struggled with postpartum depression and then probably bipolar depression, although that diagnosis didn't exist. Uh, But she was very, very intelligent, beautiful, and unpredictable uh, and chaotic. And Mm -hmm. so that... I knew from a young age I didn't want to be that kind of mother. And even though I myself got pregnant, I, I was at a young age. I was uh, I went to college when I was 16, which I considered my escape route. Mm-hmm. And so I was 16 in college, and by the time I, I, I was a... Um, the end of my sophomore year, I myself got pregnant unexpectedly. And my mother said, you're never going to finish college. And Mm -hmm. in my mind, it was like, I'll show you. I see. (laughs) And that's kind of what this story, what I was telling you, the hillbilly elegy that he had to do to break out. I had to break almost family ties, but I quickly recognized that I needed to be the person who helped the other kids. I was the oldest. I am the oldest of five help the other kids um, heal. And so I moved back to Texas. I went through a a long process of healing my relationship with my sisters. Didn't quite make it all the way with my brothers, but made some progress. And then as I got older, I started to see that in every generation in my family, we lost really wonderful people either through addictions or suicide or mental illness. Mm -hmm. Every single generation across my mother's family, who I was most close with, had children and grandchildren with one of those things or with really severe obesity. What was it about you, Carolyn, at a young age that could sort of detach enough to see your family dynamics more objectively rather than being so a part of things that you couldn't see clearly what what do you why why were you able to be so have that perspective a clear perspective you know that's a great question nicole i've never been asked that question but i think being the oldest Mm -hmm. um, is part of it and i also have have noticed in my life in general that for some reason I've been kind of gifted with the ability to see patterns in behavior. Yes. 
important as a clinician, right? That's right. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm sure you have the same thing. And so I began to see these patterns, uh-huh. and then I started. And, you know, I lost my own son to suicide. Oh, my gosh. My Yeah, my um, one of my sister's children is uh, severely mentally ill and homeless. Uh-huh. My first cousin had five she herself uh, was schizophrenic, and one of her five children also was severely mentally ill, probably schizophrenic. And so it was pretty clear. And being the doctor in the family, I was the uh-huh. only doctor in my generation, uh-huh. in my immediate family. Uh-huh. And so everybody would come to me and say, well, this is happening. And now my, my nephew, my, uh, my brother's son, his, one of his children has developed a mental illness. So it's pretty hard to miss when you, you know, have that coming at you 24-7. So, Was there any part of you that felt like you were turning your back on your family when you went off to uh, go to medical school and you have another advanced degree? I mean, how is it? I And, and I know I talk to clients about this and this idea of, you know, I can't, be with my family for too long because it's too difficult or painful or toxic or whatever. And that dilemma of, you know, what's my responsibility to be sort of a sister or a family member and how do I also protect myself? Mm -hmm. Well, I think of two things. One is when I was very young, like in college, my only goal was to escape. Mm-hmm. And so that was the driving force of me moving. My family lived in the Midwest and in Texas, and I moved all the way to California. I would have moved nice. to Hawaii if I had thought about I it. I see. So you knew you had a clear mission. Yeah, but later, mm-hmm. not too much later, um, I think I had really good therapist. Mm-hmm. Uh, for I mean, I've been in therapy for most of my adult life, and... I would say that, you know, in particular, I had some, uh, had a very great therapist here in San Diego, a family therapist, and he taught me a lot about what you're, you know, what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And then I've had other good therapists when I've moved to other cities. So I think it's, it was a process over time of, um, you know, learning to set boundaries. It's the same process we take our clients through. It's the mm-hmm. same process I do with individuals who come to me who have binge eating disorder or, or who are opiate, who have opiate addiction, etc. They have to learn that process too because many times they, like many of us, are very sensitive people. Mm-hmm. They want to help but often do it at the expense of their own well-being. Mm -hmm. You know, what I'm also thinking about is you're such an expert in trauma, both, you know, as someone who has studied it, but also through your own personal experience. When you're sitting with someone, how do you uh, prevent yourself from getting kind of pulled under by their trauma, if it if it has some kind of familiar ring, uh, how how do you how do you keep yourself healthy and and separate yeah. from somebody else's pain? 
the, the secondary traumatization. Mm. Uh, I think I've gone through several phases with that. Early on, I used a lot of alternative therapies. I had therapists who recommended visualizations, you know, mm-hmm. be, putting yourself in a green egg, imagining after your work day of seeing patients that you go into a shower and let all of the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so it, initially it was it was like that. And then I think particularly after the uh, my son's suicide, I began to use what happened to me in my work. And so I was, at the time that he died, I was the head of the eating disorder program at Sierra Tucson. And, you know, his death cracked me. I mean, Mm. I, it was years Mm. that I struggled to just get out of bed. But I found that when I was working with, you know, my patients, and particularly with their parents, I could really speak to them from experience. You know, I could say to them, I know how afraid you are. Mm -hmm. I know what you think about, uh, you know, about losing your daughter or son to this disease. And I could really uh, empathize rather than just sympathizing. I see. You could join with them. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I had to keep professional boundaries, but Mm -hmm. that's not to say that uh, tears didn't come to my eyes when, you know, when I was talking to them or they were telling me about how they were feeling. Um, so I was, I felt that I was able to use my experience in a way that honored my son. And that kind of became a new way that I dealt with my own trauma. And then recently, um, you know, doing the TEDx Pleasant Grove uh, talk uh, was extremely difficult for me. I had no idea it was going to bring up so much of my past because, you know, even though I'm African-American, many people in looking at me mm-hmm. don't recognize that I am. They may think I'm Hispanic or Jewish or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. So when I left the South, I uh, didn't really get confronted with my race on a daily Like you were passing. It was like I was passing, even though I wasn't trying consciously to pass. I just stopped thinking about it. And then when I went to do the TEDx talk, I mean, it it just threw me into this process of remembering growing up in the Jim Crow South, uh-huh. you know, watching my grandfather and my mother and father uh, but particularly my grandfather and my mother, who were native to the South, uh, being treated in different ways by, you know, the white people people at the bank or at the store, or, you know, whatever. And, you know, those constant day-to-day microaggressions that uh, happened in our family and how that impacted me. Because I really had never processed that mm-hmm. part of my history it was kind of like, I left the South, and I left that in the South. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what I thought. <laughs> oh, it sounds so complex, because I imagine, too, that there's maybe a relief and like, well, at least I don't have to fight this battle every day. But then what of your identity? Yeah, it was a, lo- it was a loss of my identity, for sure. And, 
you know, it made, like, I went away to college. It was an all-white college. There were the only, I had a, a roommate who was black. She and I were the only black people in the entire school. Oh, my God. I transferred to a bigger college, and the majority of the black people there were uh, basketball or football players, you know, with a few like myself and my roommate. But And then, you know, I went to med school at University of Michigan. And, yes, we had a black student union, a black student society. Thank God for that. But the I, I'm trying to remember, was there another black person in my class of 200? I can't even. Oh, yeah, there were two other uh, women, I believe. But still, you know, you get my point. So I'm I'm now traversing territory that doesn't, you know, feel like where I grew up. And so I think, you know, I don't even think I thought about it. I just adapted in the best way I could. The only rub was inside I was really, you know, this person who was black and from the South and had had these experiences. And... When I would interact with people, for, like from who I really am, they would get confused. Mm-hmm. And so that was the only rub. And so I think less and less, uh, you know, or more and more, I, I just acted like everybody else. Yeah, I can imagine this temptation to step into the role of a vaguely non-white or something, you know, something yeah. vague uh, doctor. That's a whole other world. Yeah. But, you know, when I, I heard about uh, our vice president-elect going to Howard University, mm-hmm. I felt jealous because, uh, you know, most of, like, my grandfather was a doctor. He went to Meharry. Um, my mother's uh, sister and two of her brothers were doctors and or dentists, and they went to traditionally black colleges, but I thought, you know, I'm going to do one better than them, and I'm going to go to, you know, a highly rated, Mm -hmm. you know, white school, Mm -hmm. but I felt jealous because I really see what I did miss, miss out on in being a part of, you know, something that um, I lost in trying to kind of get ahead and put my past behind me. Mm, wow. There's so much to understand there. And um, that's so fascinating. In terms yeah, we of could how do we'll another five we podcasts do- <laughs> <laughs> on this topic. Yeah, I mean, I just, this whole idea of identity, how others see us and how we see ourselves and what yeah. we choose to share. And it's, it's really fascinating. Um, you have a lot of books out and you've got lots of uh, learning material for people who are struggling with binge eating disorder and all kinds of eating disorders. Can you tell us a little bit about where people can find out more about you and the work you do? Sure. Well, um, I have three books, one on binge eating disorder, one on food addiction, one on emotional eating. And those are all available on Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of information is available on my website, which is just my name, Carolyn mm-hmm. Ross, MD.com. And Carolyn okay. is spelled C A R O L Y N. So, Carolyn Ross, MD.com. Mm-hmm. There's 
info on binge eating disorder. There's information about me. There's my TED Talk. Uh, and, and I also have a program, which is an online coaching program for people with binge eating, emotional eating, and food addiction. And that's called the Anchor Program. And it right. has its own website, site, anchorprogram.com. Okay, Anchor Program. And I was, um, I think I told you this, I was introduced to you many, many years ago when you put out a beautiful CD, which people don't even use anymore, right? Right. About the joy of mindful eating with Andrew Wheel. Andrew Weil, yes. Andrew Weil. Well, I did, I did two years, uh, a two-year fellowship with Andy in Tucson at his program in integrative medicine. Okay. And that's how I was introduced to him, and he was a you know, big mentor in uh-huh. helping shape my approach to treating eating disorders and addictions using more of an integrative medicine approach and body, mind, spirit, and you know, alternative therapies and so on. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because when I, when I evaluate people now, new clients, I always ask them, this is kind of, well new, I don't know, in the last 10 years, you know, do you have a spiritual community? Do you have spiritual mm-hmm. beliefs? Not because I'm the religious police, but just <laughs> because I want, and I'm very clear, like, you know, it could be whatever. It's, yeah. uh, I'm not saying you got to go to church on Sunday, but just to try to understand what inner resources they have Correct. Um, so they can draw on those as they are in recovery. Yeah. 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 Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and get to know you. And um, I just love your way of explaining things and very down to earth. And I think our audience is really going to appreciate knowing more about your work because as as we know, people are really struggling. So it's carolynrossmd.com for people to find out more. And thank you so much for your time and your, thank you. and your honesty. Thank you, Nicole. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone. I wanted to tell you about a powerful new tool that supports your mental and emotional health in what are extremely trying times. And you may remember that I've been a psychotherapist for 30 years, and I'm always a little suspicious of products that claim to help us feel less anxious, depressed, or worried. But then I was introduced to a new kind of app called Cope Notes, and I have become a big fan. Cope Notes was developed by a guy who spent a lot of his life trying to figure out what might help support him through his own weekly psychotherapy sessions. Cope Notes is an app that gives you random texts through the day to break through some of the negative messages that might be repeating in your head. It's well-researched and has been adopted by many mental health facilities. I highly recommend it. I think we can all use a little support right now. So check out Cope Notes dot com forward slash zestful. I will receive a small portion of those proceeds. Um, and I'd love to hear your feedback about how it works for you. Now back to the show. 
Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used up. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.